0: This is Epicenter episode 450 with guest Josh Lehman. Welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and people driving decentralization and the global blockchain revolution. I'm Brian Crane. And today I'm speaking with Josh Lehman. He's the executive director of the Erbit Foundation. And we're going to talk a lot about, you know, what is Erbit and what it all means. But just before that, uh, a brief word from our sponsor. So first of all, we have stake wallet. stake wallet is, you know, your new favorite multi-chain mobile wallet that puts the power of Web3 at your fingertips. So with just a few taps, you can easily stake and manage your assets on over 22 different protocols, including... Major EVMs, L2s, and chains like Cosmos, Solana, Near, and more. They also recently integrated BNB and Harmony One staking and support for NFTs. So uh, yeah, just uh, check it out. They're also yeah adding lots of especially NFT support. So go and download Stake Wallet today on iOS and Android, or go to StakeWallet.fi and that's Stake spelled like the meat. And then also Gnosis Safe. So, Knoosis Safe is, you know, the leading security standard for Web3 asset management, reimagining the future of ownership and value coordination. It works basically as a multi-sig based smart contract account. It's compatible across EVM chains. It's totally programmable to give you the power to customize permissions and access, set user limits, and ensure the stealth security while doing so. It secures over 60 billion in self custody, maybe slightly lower at the moment. Not sure. But uh, a huge amount and caters to DAOs, uh, institutions, but also individuals. So it's a- available on Ethereum, Polygon, uh, Optimism, BSE, Avalanche, lots of different chains. So go to gnosis Safe.io to check it out. And third of all, again, wallet, Tally Ho. So Tallyho is rethinking the wallet kind of as a, like a public good. So it's like a community-owned alternative to MetaMask. Uh, they also focus a lot on like metaverse and having, uh, and, and they the first wallet that's kind of like structured, organized as a DAO. And their you know, their commitment to community ownership goes beyond just the wallet. So they're also sponsoring Ether.js as an open source JavaScript library. And they also pledge to commit two and a half percent of their token supply to a Gitcoin aqueduct. So head over to tallyho.cash. So that's, dot cash to try it out. And with that, let's get into the episode. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to have you here.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It is great to be here.
0: Yeah, so so maybe a little bit of context here. So we're going to speak about Urbit today and kind of the theme of this, URBIT, uh, of this episode is this sort of you know, building on Urbit. Now... We have, I have actually done an Urbit episode before in this podcast a long time ago. It was five years ago, where Meher and I interviewed uh, Galen, uh who is the CEO of, of Clon, which is sort of it's been the main company building Urbit. Uh so go check out that episode. It's actually still pretty current. Uh you know, we listened to it recently and it's kind of it's all still all you know, it's all pretty uh pretty accurate you know because uh erbit has actually been sort of conceived a long time ago and so a lot of the fundamental architectures is, is unchanged and they're just slowly moving along
1: it has not pivoted
0: yeah it's not pivoted yeah. exactly <laughs> not pivoted and so i have become i mean i've been interested i guess in erbit since then so for about five years but then more recently become much more interested because i just Felt like it went from this abstract thing to something, okay, there's actually a lot of activity, progress. Felt like it was going somewhere and going to someplace that's exciting. And um, and then Josh here. Uh, yeah, so Josh is at the Urbit Foundation, but maybe we can we can just uh, hand over to you at this point. Tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, who are you and how did you get involved in this urban thing?
1: Yeah, so I'm Josh. Um, I head up the Urbit Foundation, which is a new entity as of this year. Um, unlike a lot of projects in the space, Erbit started first with a for-profit company that worked on the project for a long time and spin off spun off the foundation much later after kind of a long incubation period and um a good amount of watching the space to figure out how to best do a foundation and what it should do. Uh my background's in software development. Um I did a series of startups in San Francisco Bay Area. Um, they all, you know, eventually didn't make it, but they took progressively longer to not make it. Um, learned a lot from doing that, built a lot of technology myself as a solo founder, always at first and eventually with a team. Um, and I spent a lot of time just kind of in the trenches of classic Web2 programming, uh, building technology. Um I started, my involvement with Urbit started as just an enthusiast. I heard about it on Hacker News, which is how a lot of people heard about a lot of things back in the day. Maybe they still do. And uh, whatever it was, I had no clue, but it was certainly really interesting and someone had spent a lot of time naming things. And it seemed like a, you know, it was serious in a different way than, than a lot of things were that I was familiar with, but I didn't quite get it. And it took a few years, I think until about late 2016, early 2017, To when I finally really understood the project because they put some time into explaining it in this like 10 minute long video interview with Galen and and Curtis. And I started going to meetups because they had these in the Bay Area and I became absolutely fascinated with it because it was stupidly ambitious. You know, I was always into functional programming, had been since college, and I built most of the technology I worked on in Clojure because... I had a hard time grokking Haskell. Clojure made a lot of sense to me. And I always, you know, I loved functional programming, but I was not really, you know, like the thing that blew my mind about Urbit was that it was actually a functional computer, an entire stack built around those ideas. And so uh, what first drew me to it was that it was as a technologist, as a programming language and a stack. Uh, But this was in 2017 at a time when Urbit was barely usable. You know, it existed. It had existed since 2013 as a you know real piece of software you could run, uh, but not for anything useful, really. And so I stayed involved with the project, talking to the various people that uh, were working on it that I met at these meetups like Galen and Ted uh, over the course of, I guess, until 2020. So about three years as I was working on this other startup. And in 2020, uh, I got really into it again and decided to plunge a little bit more fully into the ecosystem as I, you know, found myself increasingly impressed by what these guys had built, that they'd taken this crazy idea to reinvent all of computing, you know, who would do that? Uh, And they actually did it and started building real products on it. And it was at that point that, you know, the stars aligned for me and I got to make the plunge into working on it full time.
0: Cool. Cool. I I think you sort of, like, touched on, you know, you mentioned, like, a few things before. You mentioned, like, functional computer, reinvent computing. But, like, most people listening to this podcast, they will not have heard of it at all, probably. Or maybe they heard, like... They heard about it and were very confused
1: by it. That's a very common one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe some of the people have heard about it and confused. Most Many people will not have heard about it at all. Uh, So... Yeah, can you explain what is Erbit and what is the vision of Erbit? What is it trying to accomplish?
1: Yeah, to start, and maybe relevant for this crowd, Urbit is not a blockchain. Uh, it makes use of a blockchain, which it did as of 2019. Uh, but that's you know probably not the most fundamental component of it. What Erbit is is the recreation of personal computing, uh, sort of as imagined at the you know turn of the nineties when the internet was becoming a thing and there was this dream that people would be running all of their own software on servers and connecting peer to peer with one another. You know, that was the mentality of of the you know the early pioneers of the internet. And obviously it morphed into something very different. The fundamental idea behind Urbit, I think, is that Computing is too complicated. The, the stack that we build on is inherited from the 70s and before, you know, Unix and Linux, which, well, you know, Unix being kind of the main uh, philosophy powering Linux, which powers pretty much the entire Internet, which is, in my opinion, the most useful, interesting application of computers, which is communication between people that is all based on technology that predates networks themselves. Uh, And so ever since then, we've been bolting on additional layers of software further and further up the stack as we discover the things that we really want to use computers for. And as a developer in the, you know, 20 teens, what you find is that building the kinds of applications that we all want to build is insanely complicated. And it's full of what you'd call incidental complexity the things that are not related to the problem you're trying to solve, uh, but are to satisfy the constraints of the computing environment that you're in. So you need to build authentication, you need to deal with databases, you need to deal with security, and a bunch more. The fundamental idea, you know, returning to urban is if you could redesign computing to be, you know, from the present, looking back in time and going, this is actually what we want to use computers for is communication with other human beings. If we were to build a computer today around the things that we know we want to use computers for, could you build something that was simple enough to where everyone could actually run their own technology without, you know, descending into a horrible web of complexity that ultimately leads people to delegate that to uh, trusted third parties that can do it for them. And if you can do that. You end up with very different software. Uh, you end up with things that are not services but tools. Uh, this is a thing that you know is held up very well about Galen's whole line of reasoning is that software should feel like a tool. It should feel like you know a thing that you buy or create and then you use like forever, um, and maybe you tweak it here and there over time. But ultimately, it's a thing that you own and it's a thing that stands the test of time. Uh, you know, there's a idea. To make, you know, as close to eternal software as we possibly can, things that are um, inherently good, and you know, without an underlying motive to become Google uh, and to own every aspect of, uh, you know, the people that use the system. Uh, so, yeah, I, that's that's really what it's aspiring to be is, is a system in which a group of people. Ideally, everybody runs their own infrastructure and runs the tools that they need to communicate with the people they need to communicate with. And they are very much using a proper bicycle for the mind, something that isn't trying to harvest their attention um, for various forms of profits. And, and not that I'm against profit, but uh, the kinds of things that are harmful to the end user, um, often in ways that their creators don't anticipate. Now, that's kind of a you know philosophical pitch. What this thing actually is, it's a new computing stack. It's like you go back to the 1970s, you you start over from scratch with what a computer should be, from assembly language on up to a higher level language on up to an operating system that uses those stacks. Um, that's you know, like I mentioned earlier, that's an absurd thing to imagine doing these days. Nobody goes and says, well, "Let me just you know start over at assembly language and." build a new computing environment uh, because that's just a huge challenge. Well, that's what Urbit set out to do and that they actually did and that you can now run software on top of.
0: Yeah, I think that is one of the things that's sort of mo- actually particularly striking about the Urbit thing, which kind of makes sense if you understand like the scale of the ambition is also sort of the history of the project and just like how long uh, this has been going. Yeah, it's
1: like 20 years.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what, yeah, what is the history of Orbit been?
1: So I can, I can talk about it imperfectly because I wasn't there in the early days. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've had a lot of the lore passed down from me through, to me through being around all these people. But um, as legend would have it, the project started in about 2002 um, as the personal project of a guy named Curtis Yarvin. Um, much has been said about him. I'm not going to say too much. He worked on this as a personal project and as an idea from about, you know, something that there aren't any public records of until around, you know, screw up the year. I think it was 2010 or 11. There was a Moron Lab, it was a site he ran, um, blog post um, that introduced the concept of Urbit. And, uh, the dar- you know, the, those early period when it was kind of an idea in his mind to when it became public uh, was, you know, seven or eight years at about the time that you imagine Bitcoin was being created, don't really know exactly how long that was being worked on, but probably over a similar stretch, um, it was you know announced to the world at about the same time, and it existed as a you know complete, although you know not very good working system in 2012, 2013, somewhere in there, and that's when Curtis took that idea and said, you know, I need to. In order to actually build this thing, I'm going to need to recruit a team, and I'm going to need to raise some money. And he went out and founded a company called Tlön uh, with with uh, Galen, uh, who became his co-founder shortly thereafter. Um, and the two of them worked on Tlön from now, from then until the present. And Tlön, you know, the idea was that you know there's kind of two models that Eric S. Raymond outlined in like an early nineties paper um, called the cathedral and the bazaar where there's these two models for, for building software. You have the cathedral, which is the top down hierarchical. There is a singular point with a vision and everything stems from that and defines the software system by design. And then you have the bazaar, which is sort of the Linux model of open source where you have a group of people who build something collectively um, on merit. And you end up with very different kinds of architectures. You know, the cathedral is very much, you know, rigid and hierarchical and highly specific. And the bazaar is sort of organic and amorphous and, you know, full of all kinds of different outgrowths. Um, and both are very good. Um, both both can be not good. Also, they're just two two models. And the idea with Urbit was, you know, for this system to come to exist, it has to start as a cathedral. It's very much a you know, it it has a singular vision and a, a take on the world that has to be defined and done in a setting that gives the creators more or less complete control over that vision. Until which point that that vision is sufficiently solidified and communicable to a wider audience, the principles of the system are defined, and at that point, morphing into a bizarre model is is a good thing. So Talon was that cathedral, uh, that would, you know, sort of give birth to the project. And over that period of time, you know, Urbit gained something of a, a reputation as being sort of hostile to open source. That's why, uh, they were really not trying to harness open source until a point at which the system was solid enough. Um, that time started happening in about 2020, uh, maybe a little bit before, um, which is about when I showed up. And that was when Tlon was beginning to realize this is the time to begin figuring out how to transition this from being our project and our vision to something that is more widely held by a community and eventually an ecosystem. Over a lot of that time, the technical You know, the the, the work that had to happen was that Urbit had to go from something that was an MVP to something that, you know, really embodied its own principles. And at a bare minimum, it needed to work, you know, like it needed to be a thing that, you know, you didn't have to do what we call a network breach on every couple of months, uh, which used to happen. That's where you basically reset the entire mainnet uh, to, to zero and everyone must start over from scratch with all of their data blown out, you know. Um, it's like a, you know, like a test net that you can just blow out, and that was the state of things. And it was resetting every few months, which made it very hard to actually use it for anything real. And it was horribly inefficient, and the design of the veins, the parts of the kernel, was not really fleshed out. Um, so there was a lot of churn of the code base, which made it very hard to accept open source contributions even though the code was open source because you often have, you know, sweeping design decisions being made that blow out the, you know, an entire way of doing things that aren't really communicated to anyone. Um, that's, you know, we're now at this point where that's all changing.
0: Yeah, no, I think this is a good, uh, a good description. I think a good description of both the history a bit and, and sort of where it's at. I do I do think, I mean, yeah, who knows what Satoshi did, right? And, like, how long he was working on this thing until, like, it kind of came out. But definitely, yeah, you can imagine something like that, right? Probably, like, yeah, I, th- I think it's a sort of a fascinating thing, right? After some person spent, like, eight years or just, like, in a solitary pondering of this crazy idea.
1: Yeah, just in a rapture with an idea, you know? And, yeah, that's... It's a long period of time to be working on a thing alone.
0: What is uh, like you mentioned a bunch of stuff, right? You mentioned sort of the you know the release of this initial Orbit system in you know 2012, and then getting to the point where okay, it is more is more something that's like okay, solid, right? And it's going to be kind of like this. But can you talk a little bit more about you know where's Orbit today? Like what has what's the current state of, you know, of, of the system.
1: Yeah, totally. And let me, uh, let me start that by kind of speed running some of the major things that I've been present for over the last couple of years that, uh, maybe last three that started to make it really solid and get us to where we are today. And I think one of those big ones, which was about a year before I came on to, you know, really devoting my energy to the project was in 2019 when they went on chain. Um, Prior to that, Urbit's address space model was stored in a text file on in a GitHub repo. Uh, there was always this idea that, okay, there needs to be people that cryptographically own parts of the Urban address space, um, but we don't have a system for that.
0: Actually, uh, I think that's maybe something that's worth explaining. What is Urbit address space?
1: Yeah, so, you know, Urbit address space is The, it's the network topology. Um, We have names for, for these, you know, a running urban node is called a ship and there are multiple classes of ship. Uh, The ones that are important to really talk about for this conversation are galaxies, stars, and planets. Um, Galaxies, you can think of kind of like root DNS nodes. Uh, They are able to spawn stars, which are other infrastructure nodes, they perform peer discovery and packet routing because this is this is sort of one of the problems you have with a peer-to-peer network is ultimately you need to be able to establish connection with people throughout the world. Um, you gen- tend to need certain nodes that are privileged to uh, and usually have better infrastructure capabilities to route your request to somebody else so that you can form a peer-to-peer connection. And that's the main role of... Uh, One of the main roles, at least, of the infrastructure nodes, the nervous. You have this hierarchical address space, which is there to enable a peer-to-peer network to actually operate efficiently. So the galaxies, there's a limited number of those, just as there are root DNS nodes. Um, They tend to be fairly valuable because there aren't very many of them. They also form what's called uh, the Galactic Senate, which is the group of people that have the ability to upgrade the rules that define urban address space. So this was all dreamed up long before Ethereum and DAOs existed, but you can think of the galaxies as kind of a DAO. Um, and that's, that's you know kind of how they operate today. Um, they vote to upgrade a set of smart contracts that run on Ethereum. Um, and that's what governs the rules of the address space. And so you have these galaxies, 255 of them, each of which can spawn 255 stars. And each star can spawn roughly sixty five thousand planets, so two to 32, or third sixteen. Um, planets are what an individual orbit user would use. They are valuable enough to where you would actually want to establish a track record of using one and use it day to day, but they are not so valuable that you have to go through um, annoying opsec hoops in order to you know, keep a valuable piece of cryptographic assets safe. And so each of these are NFTs. Uh, they all correspond to a number from zero through 4.3 billion, two to 32. And they comprise the orbit network when running. Uh, they largely operate the same with these slight differences in that stars and galaxies perform packet routing and peer discovery. And they also, one thing I left out is that galaxies perform software distribution. So. Um, a galaxy disseminates its software to all of its stars, which then disseminate that to all of their planets. And so um, you can imagine a fully-fledged urban network being a thing in which the different galaxies start to diverge in which code they actually supply to their section of the network. Um, that hasn't happened. Um, it's It could, though.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And then basically, right? So you have you have this like scarcity of this address space, and then in 2019, right? You mentioned basically this is like put on Ethereum, um, and today it lives on Ethereum, right? So like if
1: yep, correct. Smart contracts turned out to be the right substrate to build this kind of model. Um, you know, rather than trying to invent that ourselves, it's like oh yeah, use Ethereum that that works. Yeah. And scarcity, it's worth noting you know, a thing about scarcity and that it provides an important function because each of these, you know, the urbit address space, each one of these NFTs is what's called an orbit ID. Um, and it has a human pronounceable and visual representation that's recognizable. Um, my planet is called Woolref Podlex. Uh, you can, you know, it sounds weird, but eventually you get used to it. And because you can pronounce it, it becomes a name of sorts. And that's what you use when you run any software on the urban network to communicate with other people, you know, it's like your domain name and IP address rolled into one and persistent or like your ENS name, you know, is maybe a a good way to think about it for this crowd, but it's built into the operating system and every application uses it at a packet level to send packets signed by that identity throughout the network. So this becomes like a primitive, um, identification mechanism for every actor on any piece of software that you build on the urbit operating system. Um, and that's really like the key important thing to get from Urbit address space is that there's a, a finite number of those and their scarcity is what makes them valuable and makes it so that Urbit creates high trust communities because your reputation is valuable. Um, you had to pay something to obtain that NFT and communicate with people. Um, And if you do anything malicious, it will destroy the value of that in other people's eyes and, uh, you know, ultimately not work out very well for you.
0: So you mentioned, uh, I think, this, you know, big event uh, or, or this big change that kind of came with her, which was distribution of software right? So, you know, basically people can, can write applications sort of like urban applications, yep. but can you explain like what are urban applications and, and how do they differ from, let's say, uh, an application that let's say an iPhone application or maybe, uh, a adapt, like let's say an Ethereum decentralized application. So w- w- yeah, w- what are the differences?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so an urban application is server-side, uh, primarily. Um, it can, of course, have any number of interfaces. You can interface with an urbit application over an iPhone app or over a command line, over a web interface. Um, but the urbit part of it is something that runs server-side. But the key thing is that it's your server. And so you know when you run an urban application, you're running it on your own node, Um, and so that is your own personal cloud server. It is, you know, an urban application is, you know, the technical name for it would be what's called a desk, which is like a, a package of code. The main unit of code in there is what's called an agent. And this is like a long running process. Um, you can think about it like a, you know, kind of like a web server or some service that would run on say Linux. Uh, we call them agents, and they have a specific interface for accepting information, uh, allowing you to read information out of them um, and subscribe to certain paths that will produce updates over time. Um, so I think the the key things about an urban application that are important to to get are, you know, any application you build, like I was mentioning before, has authentication and authorization baked into it. Uh, Every packet that you send is is bound to an identity. So you're not building authentication systems into an urban application. Um, Every application has the ability to talk to any other application, whether that's running on your ship or any other person's urban node or ship, Uh, same thing that, you know, Urbit defines this peer-to-peer network that allows these applications to talk to one another and all the information exchanged over that network is typed. Uh, This is kind of cool. Um, You don't need to go and read developer documentation for, you know, what someone's JSON API is and then program against it and get everything just right because either you can send information or you can't because it satisfies the type system or not. You know, so the whole network and peer-to-peer, the whole peer-to-peer network is statically typed. And so when you build an urbit application that can talk to any other person's application, you you can also distribute that peer-to-peer. So if I build something, anyone else can get it directly from me. So every Urbit node is its own app store, or at least can be, uh, where those are things that you build rather than submitting them to, say, Apple's app store with an iOS app or the Chrome web store for a web extension or some 3rd parties. Uh, you know, gated, moderated, um, you know, distribution mechanism. Uh, the application are distributed peer to peer themselves, and that means that every person running an Urban application is running a full version of it. Urban is also an acid database, meaning all of the in you know the the, the data that an application needs to run is stored on that ship with transactional semantics. So I don't need databases either. So ultimately an Erbit app is like a it's a server-side application that you do not have to build authentication into, you do not need to deploy a database to because Urbit already is one, and a peer-to-peer network with static typing. All of that baked in. So what do these tend to look like in practice? Well, Urbit uh, can also serve web pages. So you can serve your own website that talks to any, you know, a, a number of agents um, packaged into a desk or application. Um, and so you have a web interface for talking to your own private server and that can also talk to other people. So there's all kinds of applications you can build with this, anything social. Um, the current, you know, kind of predominant use case is a discord like groups application where you can form groups of people and you can create chat channels, notebooks, link collections, share information with people. Uh, there's a variety of other things that have been built as well. And I think the thing that Urbit particularly excels at is any kind of application that networks with other people. Um, how this differs from a dApp is that you have off-chain state. You know, this is one of the big problems of, of dApps is that, you know, if you, if you need to do anything other than display information on a blockchain you have two options you store that information in local storage or you store it in some other centralized service Um, and both of those are a problem you can also store it on a blockchain but then you have to pay a bunch of money to store it and there's all kinds of data that you really just don't want to have to put on a blockchain because it's just not important enough and it's only yours You know, it's your private settings or configuration. Gnosis safe is a great example of this where, you know, your all the metadata associated with your safes is stored in local storage. So if you ever want to use a different browser, then, well, you kind of have to re-upload your safes and at least the information that identifies them as what they are. And when you sign a transaction, you're relying on a service that Gnosis runs in order to shuttle those partially signed transactions back and forth. Um, an urban application would send things directly to the other people that you are trying to talk to and would store all of your information, your annotations and metadata about information on a blockchain on itself, which is private and only yours and not shared with any third party.
0: Cool. I think that's a nice, that's a nice example, right? So like, okay, let's say we, we, the two of us together have, uh, a Gnosis safe, right? So basically like a multi-sig, we control on an Ethereum and that could be built inside URBIT, right? So then it would mean now the two of us wanna, I mean, first of all, I guess, right, would be what you mentioned, right? Okay, so we can have each some local state that describes maybe labels of transactions or something like that. And that's just in our personal server. And then if you wanna make a transaction, you know, I'm like in... Initiating the transaction, it gets sent to you uh via the urbit PHP network. You know, you can you can sign the other side and then like broadcast it and then it's live, right? Which is doesn't work like that today in Ethereum, right? Because I guess today in Ethereum people access this via you know like the web browser and you know then it's in maybe in this local cache, I guess, like what you said. Yeah, or, they,
1: they need they need a way, you know, a Gnosis safe. If you and I have a multisig, when I sign a transaction, all I'm doing is, you know, I'm not putting anything on the chain yet. I'm creating, I don't know which cryptography they use exactly. Um, this is beyond my pay grade, but what they're doing is creating a part, essentially a partial transaction that's awaiting one more on the multisig, And that's information that you need to sign in order to submit it to chain. Um, But I have to get that to you somehow. And the way I get that to you, if you're using Gnosis Safe, is through a service that Gnosis runs that indexes all of the multisig addresses along with their recipients. So it knows that when my address signs this transaction, it looks up the other addresses that are on that multisig and says okay, I need to actually provide this information to the other people that are accessing the Gnosis Safe client through those addresses. So the network routing is through Gnosis. And if that service goes down, then you can't use Gnosis Safe anymore. It is not actually a decentralized application.
0: Yeah, yeah. So maybe you can go a little bit more into like, like So, okay, we have Gnosis Safe as an example, right? I think it's a nice example. But like for most people, they're like, okay, but well, why do I care? Like, why would I wanna use like an urban application? Like what's the great benefit for the sort of normal user of, you know, web applications over the, the internet today?
1: So I'll go come at that a couple of different ways. Like, yeah, a lot of normal users don't really care that they own their information. Um, they just want the thing to work, right? Um, Some people do care that they actually own their information. And a lot of people that do care have noticed that when you own your information and you own the tools you're using, it changes your behavior on the network, right? When you know that you're using a network in which every person participating is responsible for being there themselves, running their own infrastructure and communicating with one another... Uh, it sort of changes the social dynamics. Um, you know, everyone has kind of like a, a a shared sense of responsibility for keeping whatever that community or application is running because you're all participants on equal footing, rather than using something provided by someone else. That's something you kind of have to feel in order to understand. Um, I think this is you know fairly well fleshed out with the groups model where. You know, people that participate in URBIT groups, um, you know, like the group only really goes down if the people stop using it. You know, the urban network doesn't go down unless everyone decides to actually stop using it. And so the software, like that characteristic of the software, coupled with the fact that developing URBIT applications is extraordinarily simple compared to building any other piece of infrastructure... And I can talk about why that is in a minute. We probably should. It, it brings the accessibility of building applications for you and your community down to a level where people can normally do it. And so, you know, where my mind goes is like, okay, DAOs are a big thing. And, and, and DAO is sort of a placeholder for online community that undertakes something with one another, you know, usually with some expenditure of capital or, or effort, really. Um, for lack of a better word, we'll call that a DAO, but there's a lot of those that don't follow the traditional DAO semantics. Urban applications bring developing software as a small group that is used by that group within reach to just about any of these groups. Like it's actually not, you know, give it a couple years, maybe from now to there, but this is where we're going is it's actually fairly trivial for us to build our own chat application that is tailored to our community exactly as we want it. And it will never change or go down until we actually change it or decide to take it down or collectively stop using it. You know, we can actually build and own our own tools as communities. And so it's much more of like a a Cambrian explosion of different kinds of software that are used by the people that, that create them rather than a monoculture of everybody in the world is on Twitter or using WhatsApp. Uh, there are like pros and cons to both of those things. You know, and I don't necessarily think that Urbit is a new internet. I think it's an alternative one that works differently. And you're probably gonna see these things, you know, operating alongside one another for a long time. Um, you know, it's nice to have a global town square if you, you know, wanna go and troll some people or Um, you know, get your blood boiling, but it's also nice to, you know, have a place to talk with your family that is always the same and never changes. uh, And it's just the thing that you're used to.
0: You spoke, you mentioned a little bit sort of the aspect of, okay, it's like easier to like build an application. Can you talk a bit more about, you know, the developer perspective, like, you know, what are the advantages from the perspective of somebody you know, wanting to build an application.
1: Yeah. And I think this is sort of the big, like this is the biggest selling point in my mind. And this is what originally drew me to the project, which is, and I think that, you know, when you nail this, everything else kind of stems from this because people build, you know, they build good software. So, you know, if you want to build a web application today, like one of the first Questions you you like, there's a whole bunch of things you have to build. Regardless of what it is you're building, there's a bunch of things you have to figure out. Um, How are you going to authenticate your users? How are you going to store their information? Because you need to store their information if you're going to authenticate them, at least some of it. Um, How do you keep that secure? How do you deploy your software and keep it running? And embedded within those kinds of decisions, there's a whole bunch of other ones. Okay, well, which authentication mechanism do I use? Do I use OAuth? Do I use some third-party service, some SaaS service like Auth0 that I pay for? Do I use MetaMask and go full Web3? You know, that's a growing valid option. Do I, you know, what database do I use? Am I using NoSQL, SQL, and, you know, the many options within those? How do I keep this information secure? Which you do have to keep secure if you're storing information for other people. Right, and this is still your option. If you want to build any kind of social networked application, you're going to have to build it in some way where someone is responsible for maintaining the infrastructure that stores user data and relays information back and forth to people, even if it's Gnosis safe and those are just signatures. You have to answer all those questions and a bunch more. Right? It doesn't really stop there. Um, but you know, I'll focus on some of those, some of the big ones. And you, you end up with this problem where, okay, well, because someone has to run this thing and they have to answer all those questions and they have to build all this, they got to get paid to do it. Uh, they have to be responsible for everybody else's data, which makes the application more complicated because, you know, they're not storing their information. They're storing things on behalf of everybody and dealing with the networking involved with sending, you know, with scaling that to whatever level of scale it needs to. Uh, On Urbit, you don't have to deal with authentication because it's built in. Uh, Everyone has one identity. It's built into the operating system. It's something you can just totally take for granted and assume that every piece of information that comes into your system from the outside world comes annotated with who it came from. Um, And you just know that out of the box. And they must be authenticated and must be the person they say they are to have sent that packet you don't have to deal with a database because Urbit is already a database. And that's feasible because every person running Erbit is running their own database and is storing all of their own information. So you're no longer responsible for storing anything for anybody else. You're no longer responsible for having to build an infrastructure that can handle load for a large number of people. It's only your own load. So that's a, you know, for most applications, it's a fairly small number, unless you're like, You know Kanye on Twitter, and you have a lot of followers. Um, That's a different class of problem. But for most people, you know your own traffic and your own information is not, you know, doesn't really require anything too fancy. So you don't have to deal with databases, and you don't have to deal with security. That's built in. You don't have to worry about a data breach of your users because you don't have users. You only have you. You don't really have to worry about DevOps or deployment because you know actually. Like installing an Urban application just means putting some files in a place after you run a specific command at the command line to create um, a package for these, which you can then publish and make available to anyone else if you give them a simple text mnemonic that they can plug in to install your application. So you have a built-in distribution mechanism directly to the people that are going to use your software. Updating that software is as simple as just changing the code. And then it immediately pushes that out to everyone using it Um, unless of course it was broken in which case the type system wouldn't let you change it in the first place. You have built in data, identity, all of these things. These are just not things you have to worry about anymore. All you actually do is focus on building the application that you need. And you can take networking, data storage, security, identity, you can take all that for granted. Um, not to mention DevOps. So when you make it that simple, developers actually get to spend more time building things that are novel and less time solving the same old problems over and over and over again that come with embedded responsibility on behalf of other people, which creates weird social dynamics. You know, if I'm a DAO and one guy is responsible for maintaining all of our infrastructure, then he's got you know, a certain amount of power and responsibility and obligation that means that, you know, we're all indebted to them in a way. Um, in this model, you don't have that. Uh, we're all peers.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that is also one of the things that to me is very interesting about Urbit is the kind of different business models that will come with that, right? Because in the in the existing... Uh, world, right? In the in the sort of web to cloud world, right? Like the, the reality then means that mostly, okay, you're developing an application, you're gonna have to run a bunch of servers, right? You have you have to maintain all this data, do all the security, do all these different things.
1: You must be SaaS.
0: Yeah, so so it's kind of this natural model that then you say, okay, I'm gonna charge people, you know, uh whatever, $10 a month, right, for this, and I have to, you know, I have all these costs that come with every user, so, I, you know, I have to cover those and more, and then I have to, like, cover the software, development cost, but then in the urban world, you don't have most of those costs, right, so you could do something very different, I mean, for for one, the kind of obvious model of, oh, I'm, de- I'm developing a bunch of software and I'm going to just sell you the software, right? I just, uh, you can just buy it and then you can use it.
1: Yeah, it's a return to the days in which you, you know, buy a box with a CD in it, uh, you know, at your local Costco and uh, or wherever sells software um, and you install yeah, it to the
0: Yeah. Maybe we can talk a bit more about sort of the intersection between crypto and urbit, right? So we talked about the outer space, right? So that that's on on Ethereum. You also mentioned the example of the Gnosis Safe uh, and like how one could basically, for example, integrate that in something like Erbit and it would be quite nice. But what do you see as the, like, you know, what are the synergies or like how, how do, how does the crypto blockchain world come together? We've more generally.
1: There's a lot left to explore in the general space of where do you put your off-chain state and where do you run your applications? You know, there's also the idea of you know every user can host their own applications. So you you know, you don't end up being like it's a lot harder to come after Uniswap if Uniswap isn't providing Uniswap on uniswap.com for everybody if it's actually a collect of people that are all running it on their own servers uh, trivially um, so one is just distribution of infrastructure uh, to everyone trivially because it's actually feasible to you know run a web page very simply for only you on pretty much any computer you know I think another part is just making like a- a- at a certain level when you can better normalize that idea of like we actually have a model that aligns with our values of keeping our information private as we transact with one another in this trustless way. Uh, you end up with much richer applications, right? I can I can build a lot more social capabilities into things that are directly. Connected to a blockchain than I can otherwise because I have a layer that lets me talk directly to people. Um, you know, not only is Erbit off-chain state, but it's also compute. You know, it's your Erbit is a running server; it is always on. It can do things on your behalf. Um, we've talked a number of times, although we're not quite sure how to do this because we're, you know, we're, we're kind of looking for the right group to come along that knows this space, but. Algorithmic trading on your behalf with your own programmed algorithms operating on your own crypto, which are stored on your server, at least you know uh, some degree of keys can be stored for it. Those are things you can start to do with Urbit. Push notifications and other kinds of automated interactions can happen because it's your server and it can talk to you over any mechanism that a server can talk to a person. So when certain things happen, you can drive all kinds of other programmatic constraints. You know, like imagine if you could get a push notification every time someone requested your signature on going back to Gnosis. You know, you've actually got something there waiting for you and I don't have to use some other mechanism like signal to tell you that you need to go and sign this thing. Um, instead, it's something coming directly from the Urban Gnosis Safe application that upon clicking takes you directly to a place where you can actually sign the transaction and view it or interact with it. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing it really has to offer is just enriching the whole ecosystem with more usable applications that are less fragmented. Uh, like, crypto needs an operating system, um, it needs something that isn't just a set of disparate tools built into web pages uh, with, you know, augmented with centralized services behind the scenes of whatever company is providing the thing. Um, which they, you know, like to Gnosis's credit, they've built it in such a way that they really don't know anything about you when you're using this. And that's good, but they're still up against the fact that they have to maintain this service or Gnosis Safe doesn't work. Um, And because they don't have a model in which, you know, they can build an application that does know things about you, but without the company Gnosis knowing things about you, they're handicapped in terms of the amount of, like the, the quality of experience that they can deliver you. You know, they can't give you the ability to annotate your own transactions with private information that is meaningful to you that you don't want to share with some other company. Like, you know, you can't annotate your address book with information about the people that you're transacting with and which addresses are associated to whom without giving that to some other company. Um, And they can't send you push notifications because they would have to have enough information about you in order to send that notification in the first place. And they don't want that. So there's just kind of like this global limit to usability that is placed on the crypto ecosystem as a whole until they have a platform to build applications that doesn't involve some major compromise and integrity of what the whole thing stands for. Urbit um, can deliver that
0: fantastic. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about sort of you know the larger ecosystems that so, uh, you mentioned in the beginning, right? So there was like Clon uh, for a long time as uh, this you know main company that was developing The cathedral, but now we're moving to this world of the bazaar, right? Where there's like lots of things going on. So, you know, what are what are the most exciting things that are happening in the urban ecosystem?
1: One company, there's a couple to talk. Talon's doing some exciting things still, but I'm going to save them for you know for the end uh, because we talk about them a lot. Um, Holium, Holium holium.com. They are a group that started building on Erbit at the beginning of this year. They were previously trying to build their product on Polkadot, but quickly realized that the whole off-chain state and lack of, you know, that blockchains couldn't solve everything and they needed something else. And they, you know, the team there, um, led by this guy named Trent, discovered Erbit and realized that it actually solved a lot of their problems. And what they want to build is a unified computing environment, a space that is collaborative uh, for DAOs. The idea is, you know, okay, I've got my group of people and there's a bunch of things that we want to do very much like we do on Discord, right? We want to be able to talk with one another. Uh, We want to be able to, you know, and, and talk to one another over text, over video chat, over audio, a variety of different ways. Um, We want to be able to, like, and and this is one of the things that I haven't seen, you know, they're they're heavily in the works on, but I can only kind of imagine. But they're building what feels like a desktop environment in which each DAO defines its own space with its own software that it runs. It's customized its look and feel. And then shared cursors are a built-in primitive to the environment. So when you are in a space on your desktop, which is earmarked for some specific DAO, they call this a realm, um, you're seeing not only your, that software for that group, but you're also seeing the cursors of other people. And you can build in applications that have shared cursors amongst all the members of the community as a native primitive, Um, along with, you know, a global audio room or video room or something that this group can talk to. And you can easily switch to another space, another realm that has a totally different layout, totally different applications and totally different people. Um, and urban is really kind of the, the backbone of what enables all of that, uh, all of that to happen. Um, there's a little more to it also, you know, when you instantiate a realm, you can do so with whatever, you know, governance rules you want um, and uh, you can tokenize it as well. immediately. If you so choose. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like a, there are these DAO builder tools out there, but to my knowledge, none of them also come with a complete suite of tooling that allows those people to all interact with one another in a shared space in software that they collectively decide to use. Ukbar is another one worth mentioning, different company. Uh, they've been running since about November of last year. So you'll see a theme with people getting started right after software distribution hit and it became possible to actually build things on Erbit. Alkabar is building its own blockchain on Urbit, starting as an L2 ZK-based rollup to Ethereum. The idea is Urbit ships all act as validator nodes. Uh, ultimately, their plan is to build an L1 blockchain uh, that is all natively on Urbit, that there's still some infrastructure work for Urbit to undergo for that to really be possible. But in the meantime, um, a ZK-based um, L2 is what they're going for. And that ZK language is all based on Hoon. Um, you know, the, the fundamental the assembly language of Urbit, you might say, is called NOC. Um, they've built a parallel to that called ZOC, which is the zero-knowledge version of it. And they found that Knock, being a combinator-based language, is particularly well-suited to zero-knowledge proofs. Um, so they've been working somewhat closely with Starkware. Um, they've built Cairo compatibility between Hoon code, which compiles to knock Zoc, um, and Cairo. And so the idea is that you can now with them, not only can you build a peer to peer social application and distribute that peer to peer with other people, but it can also distribute smart contracts directly with it all built in the same language that the rest of your program is built in. So that's pretty cool. You learn one language, you learn one stack, and you have blockchain programming and peer-to-peer software development um, all in one place. Another group called Terrell. uh, They're building software for creators where you can accept payment either along crypto or fiat rails for uh, pretty much anything you list. Your Urbit can become its own storefront. You can list a blog that can be um, subscription-gated or not. you can list products. In fact, we're about to, we're working with them very closely, especially this week to go live with a pilot of their product store, which will be what we use to sell tickets for assembly or conference. So that'll actually all be our ticketing infrastructure will be built out by an Urbit company and sold over an Urbit company's payments rails. Um, and it's important for us that it's settled into USDC because the Urbit foundation is completely unbanked and um, crypto native. Um, so they're mostly working on this space for how can individual people list their own products for sale? How can they, uh, you know, and actually make either real money or magic internet money for them. Um, whether those be content creators or physical good creators. And of course, Talon, like one of the big things they're working on is urban onboarding. It's still very difficult to run an urban yourself if you're, you know, unless you're a highly technical person or a moderately technical person. Um, Urbit hosting is their big thing where they provide hosted Urbit for you as a service. And part of the constraints of providing good Urbit hosting is that, you know, you can take your Urbit with you. And this is one of the hard things infrastructurally to build about an Urbit hosting provider is you need the ability to, you know, basically export your Urbit from the hosting provider and shut everything off um, through them. You know, instead of paying them a monthly fee, you can download that whole Urbit and you can then start running it on your local computer Um, Or you can move it into a self-hosted one if you want to take that on yourself. Um, But having an option for, you know, normal people that do not want to spin up their own digital ocean droplet and run an urbit is very important where they can just sort of sign up for one and let someone else run that infrastructure for them. Um, And that's kind of their, I'd say, the the fundamental thing that they're trying to crack. Along with a company called Third Earth, which is also uh, building, hosting, Technology themselves um, so and they' they have a totally different architecture for it, so there's a little bit of friendly competition there to see kind of whose architecture is best
0: one more question sort of in terms of the you know the the, the future of, so what one of the things that I find pretty interesting and like strange about urbit or but like actually it makes a lot of sense is this idea that okay the software or at least that the, the The orbit system, the fundamental operating system becomes, uh, you know, does it stops changing at some point, right? So that you can, you know, for example, you'd be able to like boot up some planet, right? 30 years from now, and it will still run, right? Which is, of course, very different from if you look at any kind of software from like 20 years ago, nothing works, right? Because like, it's all built on stuff that's changed and upgraded and like, uh, but so, if you, if you look at this fundamental uh, URBIT kernel, um, is that finished, or like is there still like a roadmap of changes that are coming?
1: Yeah, the kernel is definitely not finished. Um, there's a lot that's going to change. The thing you flag there is that it will finish. You know, like that's and and that's not that's a that's a hard constraint of the way URBIT is built, um, which probably bears some elaboration. Um, you know, what What Brian's referring to is the idea of, at least if we take it technically, the idea of what's called Kelvin versioning, uh, which Urban invented as far as I know. Uh, yes, we also invented our own versioning system, which counts backwards to zero and stops at zero. Uh, yeah, this is in stark contrast to everything else, which counts infinitely upwards with you know, whatever scheme you want, whether that's, you know, no counting at all. It's just, you know, a hash of the latest version or it's, you know, Semver or something. The idea with urbit is that you are gradually, you know, you're the, and and this is really only constrained to the kernel, like the most fundamental layers of the stack, right? User space software, applications you build, that can be versioned however the heck you want it to be. Uh, But the kernel, the actual operating system is Kelvin versioned, which means, It starts at a warm state, you know, four or 500, somewhere in there, and it moves backwards to zero. And once it gets to zero, it can never be updated again. So the mentality that this enforces is every time I do an update, it needs to be more robust than the last one, because it's getting closer and closer to my last update that I ever get to make. And so where, you know, in our current world, most software is either perpetually changing or it is frozen by accident because it's now become so ubiquitous that it's impossible to change without causing a catas- like a catastrophe. Like if you imagine what happened if JSON introduced a breaking change, it wouldn't happen. It just can't happen because JSON has become an accidental standard in its current form that, you know, you couldn't make backward incompatible or change uh, without, you know, an unimaginable Amount of overhead. Um, just about everything else changes indefinitely, um, or you know it ends up kind of at whatever state it is until it's too hard to change. Um, the Orbit kernel is being designed to to freeze to hit absolute zero. That's the name Kelvin version. It's being designed that way, uh, which means that it should perpetually approach this you know as close to perfect as as these guys can get it. Which means that the software stack simplifies over time. Um, the, arc of, the arc of development is one of contracting, a contracting code base. There's less and less that is added over time as the group figures out how to make things more concise and elegant, um, more fundamental, per se. And where is it at today? Like, you know, so the operating system itself collectively is at Kelvin 418. So we've got a long ways to go. Um, Hoon, the language, is at Kelvin 4. Or sorry, no. Knock. The assembly language is at Kelvin four. So there are four more updates that can ever be made to Knock. So Knock is not updated very often. Um, Mahoon I think is in the low hundreds, and then the Arvo Kelvin is at about four hundred. So there's many more updates that can be made. Um, there's you know several of them made per year, but that will probably pick up as uh, more developers are added to the project, um, and the changes become more fine grained. I think the main the main things that are on the core developers radar right now are performance related. Like one of the big current things is called subscription reform, the subscription mechanic where you, you know, subscribe. It's kind of a pub sub model um, to information coming out of Gaul agents returning to urban applications. Um, the API for that is, you know, after a couple of years of working with it, um, has been shown to be, you know, kind of annoying, and so and you know, not very ergonomic from a developer's perspective. And so they're kind of reworking the way that subscriptions work to be both more performant and more pleasant to use. There's a, a global content addressing scheme called they, they call it uncreatively content distribution, um, but this is a way of more efficiently distributing information around the network through things like gossip protocols and universal identifiers a la IPFS. This enables it, you know, enables herbits to syndicate out information and get it not necessarily from its source, but from anyone else that happens to have the same piece of addressed content, and that's a big improvement. And another ongoing effort is a complete rewrite of the Urbit runtime or virtual machine. That's all written in, in C. The current runtime we have is the product of a handful of people's work over the last decade plus. Um, And it's, you know, it's pretty good, but it's amazing that it is as good as it is given, you know, how little resources have been put into it. And there's currently an effort to kind of re-architect the entire way that that works, which will uh, fix a lot of major performance constraints around the uh, like the storage limit. Back when Urbit was first built, it was built as a 32-bit system, so there's a limit to... You can only have two gigs of data in an Urbit. Um, that's one of the things that is going to change, which enables the storage of much larger files um, on your ship, constrained only by the underlying disk space, um, as well as just the general performance of the system through a different architecture, uh, making the AIMS network, the peer-to-peer network, it's called AIMS, um, making it much more performant. Past that, uh, developer experience needs to be greatly improved. You know, the fundamentals are there, but the day-to-day can still be a little bit rough. There's a lot of work that needs to happen to the terminal, which is close to to coming out. We did a developer call on that last week um, with Pelfin and sort of showing off the latest work on the terminal. Um, permissions and security. There's a little bit more, probably a lot more auditing that needs to go into the underlying security model um, and permissioning between applications model on a given ship. That's, that's kind of the stuff that's in, in the immediate sites right now. Um, and that, that's probably going to span the next year, year and a half. But we're definitely like a lot of the major problems, you know, the, the main things like AIM's actually working. Um, and you know, an identity system really working and being scalable. These problems have been solved and we're now getting into those fine grained things and closing, narrowing down on the list of, of big outstanding problems, um, which, you know, incoming years, all of those will be done and it'll be on to, to polish and refinement of the experience.
0: Cool. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are like curious, interested. How can they get involved? How what can, what can they do with bit? Like so, yeah. Can you can you give some pointers? Like if yeah, if people are intrigued and they wanna they wanna get involved in some way, where should they go?
1: Anyone that's interested should definitely get on the network. You know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, but it's also not the hardest. I'm talking to a Web three audience, so you know we're all accustomed to a little bit of of UX pain. Um, You can get on for free using a comet. You can also get on, I mean, a planet is the ideal way and you can buy them. Um, You can also generally just like ask on Twitter and people will DM you one uh, because it's a very friendly group of people. Um, So you should get on the network and you should, you know, start talking to people and seeing what's going on. Usually in the groups application, Um, you should go to our website. If you're a developer, um, there's a big update coming out in about 10 days. The end of the month is when we're targeted for, which will create kind of a totally reworked uh, developer portal with content that describes in very succinct terms, step-by-step what you need to learn in order to become an urban developer. Uh, We ran a course we we run probably twice a year. We're going to run an instructor led introductory class. Uh, We just ran the last one Um, graduated about 61 people, actually precisely 61 people. Um, And that was, that was a huge hit. It's taught by a wonderful instructor. Um, we have a grants program, unsurprisingly, that awards urban address space to people that either tackle technical projects, um, or propose their own. Uh, we also have an apprenticeships program as part of that, where you can kind of learn side by side with a more experienced developer who will mentor you, um, on, you know, some, some more technical problem. Um, And then finally, we have a, you know, the, I hesitate to call it a conference because if you've been to an urban event, you won't find it like any other conference. So I've been using the word confluence. Uh, We have an urban confluence in Miami uh, in September. Tickets are going on sale for that in the next week or so. It's September 22nd through 25th. Uh, That'll be a place where you can meet a whole bunch of people from the community Uh, Go to some, you know, go to some side events, hear some talks, see the things that have, you know, our ecosystem has been working on for the last year. Um, There'll be a lot of launches there uh, and a lot of people with a lot of energy that will be very happy to um, meet you and get you involved in whatever their project is. Um, Things are very word of mouth on Urban. So being on the network and talking to people is how most of the work gets done um, through, you know, direct relationships. We're running a hackathon that culminates at assembly. The winning four teams present and will be, you know, voted on as prize winner by the audience using an urban application that Holium produced called Ballot. Um, and that group will win, you know, a handful of stars uh, for the best thing they do. And you have two months. So um, App School Live, the class that teaches you how to become an application developer, that does have some prerequisites. So you, you know. You've got a few weeks before that starts. So, um, you know, start reading the docs for sure on Urbit.org. Um, that kicks off September, July 12th. The hackathon starts a couple of weeks later, culminates at assembly. So, if you're a developer, you're listening to this, you want to get involved, now is a really great time. Um, and you can always reach me at joshurbit.org or Wolref Podlex on the network.
0: Cool. Thanks so much, Josh. It was really great to have you on. Uh, you know, I'm super excited about Urbit. I'm definitely going to be at Assembly. Uh, and, you know, um, I've been... you know Probably very, speaking. Very much. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I've been very much enjoying, you know, diving into Urbit and super excited about what's there to come for, for the network and for the project. So thanks so much for coming on. And I'm excited to, for our listeners to kind of get an update on Orbit, And I'm sure some of them... We'll, you know, check it out and uh, get more involved as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun and, uh, you know, enjoy it. I'm looking forward to seeing you at Assembly. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast.